in order to stand out for content in 2019 and beyond, it's going to need to take more than, you know, a a skyscraper type content of 3,500 or 4,000 words. It's going to need to take something pretty special to really capture that attention in a, at scale in a viral way. This is Regrowth and I'm Matthew Kammerer. Today I'm chatting with Kevin Lee, Buffer's VP of Marketing. Buffer's content is well known in the marketing world. So much so that content marketing is Buffer's key growth channel. Today, Kevin joins me to talk about creating content strategy, aligning content and conversion teams, and the future of content marketing. Let's dive in. Buffer is well known for content marketing. Can you share how you started off at Buffer? Yeah, I joined as one of the, I guess I was the second marketing hire at Buffer. So there was one other person who joined a couple of weeks before me, and then our co-founder was running marketing at the time. And I joined as a content writer. So I was writing, oh, at the time it was four or five blog posts a week for our, our blog about social media. Mm-hmm. And the two of us, the, the new hires, we were fully content focused. So our whole marketing team was pretty much 100% content marketing back in the day. And then we've evolved from there. That's awesome. I was actually just looking at my Buffer profile. I see I joined in August of 2014. Unless I canceled at some point and rejoined, but it looks like I started paying right around the same time you started. Oh, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I had anything to do with that, but thank you for... It's direct correlation to your blog post for sure. (laughs) I hope so. Thanks. So what does content marketing at Buffer look like today? Yeah, it's, it's come a long ways and I'm grateful for the folks we have on our team who have helped take us there. So we do still have the main blog when, and content is still our main our main marketing channel, our main marketing strategy. We have the main blog, which is the social blog, and it includes all of our social media related content. And then we also have a blog that we call the open blog, which is about workplace culture, uh, team experiments, kind of an inside look into Buffer. And those have been our primary blogs for a very long time. I will say there's been lots of pivots along the way. When I first joined, we pivoted like a week after I joined. So I, I was writing much different content than I thought I was going to be uh, from day one, just about. And uh, our, our more recent pivot has been to, I guess, divide the blog or, or be more disciplined about who we're writing for on the blog. So we've taken this approach of, we believe that there's two different types of audiences that our content serves. One of them is, I guess, the kind of like the early learners or the people who are looking for one specific problem to solve and they'll come to us through Google search and we call this our, our library content. So they're looking for a single how-to guide and then they'll jump off to go do other stuff. So the other audience would be those folks who are looking for more strategies and case studies and news and trending topics and what's happening now and today. And so it might not be evergreen content from our side, but our, our bet is that it's content that will bring people back and ideally bring back the types of users who become uh, quality long-term customers for us to buffer. So now we have a library in addition to our social blog. And how do you make the decision on on how you split that sort of content? Yeah, we did some, we did, we've done a lot of analysis and research into how our content is consumed. And so what that looks like is going into Google Analytics. Um, at the moment, I believe it's, it, or before we made the switch, it was about 80% of our traffic came from search. And a lot of that was long-term evergreen posts that have been around, you know, four or five years since I wrote them back in the day, even. Mm -hmm. So that stuff has been just very long-term, very sustainable, high-quality content for us, which has been great. And 
we notice that the bounce rate is awfully high on that. We notice that new versus returning visitors, our percentages are, are very different there. And so just seeing the mass of one particular content type uh, was pretty illuminating for us. We also did some surveys of our subscribers and found that there was, uh, I guess the people who subscribe are interested in different content than those who come for one thing and leave. And so we realized there really were two different audiences here and two different types of content. And so then we started off with just some lean experiments. You know, if we cover this particular topic, I think we covered F8 one time, just like three or four posts about F8 one week. Mm -hmm. And that did pretty well. We covered some breaking news, like Instagram had lots of new features rolling out. So we'd cover those things when they would come out. Did a couple of different case studies, like very specific tactical blog posts. And those all seem to resonate with uh, kind of like a, a test group of folks that we we seek their opinions on. And so that gave us the confidence to go, I guess, lean a bit further into it. Is there a different way that you approach those content types in terms of lead generation? Like how do you get those library users to stick around and come back, for example? Yeah, we uh, we don't. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have come to terms with that. Um, I think our, our philosophy with that, we have... It's a very trusting philosophy, and, and I don't know how much trust makes sense to include with like traditional lead gen and demand gen, but um, our our goal is to build a bias for buffer, and in order to do that, we want to deliver value to folks when they need it, where they need it, and so we're totally fine with someone coming to our blog, reading something, and leaving, and us not having any any way to bring them back. Um, we don't even. I mean, we we have some. You know, like Facebook pixels and other other elements that we can use, but we we choose not to. In fact, I believe with GDPR, we even took some of those things away recently because we weren't really utilizing them to any extent. Hmm. So we mostly are okay just letting letting folks leave, um, trusting that they they will know that they found the answer they needed at Buffer and build that bias over time, so that when they need a social media solution, we'll be one of the first folks they come to. That makes perfect sense. So outside of the bias building which I think makes a lot of sense. And I, I've sort of experienced that through my own consumption. Are there any pieces that are demand gen focused? Have you given that a test at all? We did a lot of, there was one period in, in time where we were really, really lead focused on the blog. So we converted all of our CTAs to email capture forms and mm -hmm. we're really, really highly focused on that. And it did really well. We doubled our list size in the course of maybe three or four months uh, we got our list size up over over a hundred thousand pretty quickly um, which we're, we're lucky to do with the traffic that we get there mm -hmm. and it was interesting so we did that and we can what we ended up doing was comparing our conversion rate from a visit a visitor to a direct sign up is what we called it so someone just comes to the blog is reading something and clicks one of our sign up ctas to sign up for a buffer trial or a free plan we compared that that conversion rate to the conversion rate of someone who joins us as a lead and makes it all the way through our four or five step lead nurture drips drip campaigns and finally converts to that final step and we just noticed that the drop off rate from email to email to email like i guess it, it built up over time so that by the end um, it was an order of magnitude less than what the conversion rate was just from not even capturing leads not even running lead nurture at all, just sticking CTAs on the, on the blog. Hmm. So that was a pretty clear signal to us that we could spend our time better. Like we don't need to spend time refining a lead nurture campaign and managing these email lists. We can spend time building quality content, getting things to rank on search, getting more people to the blog, 
and that would kind of take care of the, the conversions itself. From the blog, it's just pushing right to a pricing page or is there something in between? We usually push to the homepage mm-hmm. and we've experimented with like how, how and where to do that. So sometimes we'll do it from the, like the homepage of the blog or the, the main page of the blog in a very clear and obvious CTA right at the top. Um, recently, we've shifted more to just a, a button that sticks in the header as you scroll up and down. Mm-hmm. Both of those are our highest converting cost to action on, on there. And yeah, they would link straight to the blog, or sorry, straight to the homepage. Uh, th- there was a time when we linked it straight to the a business trial too. So Buffer is a freemium tool. We have a free plan. We have a pro plan, which is $15 a month. And then we have business plans that start at $99 a month. And all of them come with a free trial. So we didn't really see a drop off no matter where we sent folks, whether it was the homepage or the business page. So for a time there, we did have people going straight to the business page for our, our main product. Is the blog generating folks for that premium tier, that mid tier? Is there like a general demographic that you tend to generate from the content or is it a pretty even blend? Yeah, I'd say for the most part, it's it's an even blend. Acquisition wise, we acquire uh, about 25,000 new users a week. And of those users, maybe 15 to 20,000 on average are free users. And so they're definitely the main, the main source of acquisition for us. Um, but we, we view all the acquisition on marketing as, I guess we have this, this phrasing of like a, a product qualified lead. So we want to get people, our goal in marketing is to get people using the Buffer product, no matter what plan it is. Mm. And then we, we are grateful to have an awesome product team here that they take that 25,000 number and, you know, through a great product experience, through in-app upgrades and CTAs, they're able to convert that into revenue at a, a sustainable rate. So for the moment, we didn't, we weren't particular about what kind of folks we brought in. Uh, it does tend to be, you know, more on the, on the free side, but even then a lot of businesses start with free plans. It's like very, we've noticed it's very disparate based on like what you're trying to achieve with Buffer. So some businesses will start on the free plan and use it for a while, or just to get a taste of what the dashboard's like and upgrade later on. Some folks need to start with the business plan. So we didn't try to control that too much. We just wanted to get people in the door and let the product team kind of take care of the rest. With the, the product qualified lead, how do you compare that to a marketing qualified or a sales qualified lead? Are there different ways to measure that or is that just an internal term? Yeah, I say it's mostly an internal term. We don't have a sales team, so we've never we never used sales qualified leads before. Mm-hmm. We are doing a bit more more lead qualifying starting this year, 2019. And that's probably the closest that we've come to marketing qualified leads so far. And the way we're going to do that is there's a a survey that we're going to give to folks when they come in and we want to attract a certain segment of, of users and it's users who are direct to consumer and of a company size between five and 500. And previously we have not had that data. Mm-hmm. So we're excited to see what effect that has on our acquisition and kind of the knowledge of what content does for acquisition. The best we've been able to do with that so far is a, a sur- like surveying our blog subscribers. We haven't captured that in any other form yet. So are you enriching the leads that you get with some sort of external data or you're asking for that on signup? So you are pre-qualifying by yourself through signup? Yeah, they'll be self, self-selecting. So we're not going to ask that until we get to the signup stage. Taking a look at that, that content. So 80% of it coming from search traffic, there's another 20% that's sort of lingering in there. So how do you currently promote your articles and ensure they reach that target audience? Yeah, we have two primary ways that we get them in and it's, uh, it's through search and through email. Mm-hmm. You mentioned search is the big one, of course, with 80%. And 
email, we do still have a pretty decent sized list. And so we'll send it out to the email list and, and get folks there um, early on. Those are really the only two things we actively do ourselves or we proactively do ourselves. The rest of it, we're lucky to have built quite a nice flywheel effect. So when something new does go out, we have enough people who are subscribing to the blog through RSS or finding our blog posts on social or through aggregator sites or communities. And a lot of the promotion happens organically in that in that way. And then we don't really look at traffic results. We, we look at it day one, day seven, and day 28, and measure success once the 28 days have passed. So we do give ourselves some grace so the SEO can kick in. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, we don't do a lot of manual promotion other than sending out an email and making sure it's optimized for search and social. I want to talk a little bit about how you measure it. So remind me to come back to that. But you did say flywheel, and it feels like that's a relatively new <laughs> term in terms of marketing funnels. Sure. Can you explain it a bit more to listeners? Sure. Yeah. What, what flywheel means to us is we have built a set of sustainable actions, and those actions have got to a certain scale so that when we do something... When we, when we publish a new blog post, a lot of the momentum, the system is already in place for that blog post to succeed. And so in, in particular for us, that looks like domain authority with search. So we know that if we publish, if we write a great piece of content, if we do all the, if we tick all the boxes for SEO, that we stand a pretty good chance of getting a piece of content ranked on a page one or page two quite quickly. Uh, recently, I would say it has been, you know, within the course of two or three days, we're able to see a blog post that we wrote with a keyword in mind, see that blog post on on the results there. We use Ahrefs as a tool to check that. We're able to see that pretty quickly. The other flywheel effect is building an email list. So as you are building that flywheel up, you know, if you have a thousand person email list at first, it's going to give a certain amount of momentum to that new post. But you know, the bigger your list goes, the more momentum you'll get on that. So we have, you know, 50 to 100,000, depending on how we segment our list and the new posts go out to those folks. Um, same with same with social, we have a, a decent sized following there, and that, which we built up over time. So when you combine all these factors, it doesn't really need much of a, a nudge for kind of these network effects to take hold and to carry the blog post. And then you know, quality content breeds quality readers and a quality community, and so it just keeps building over time. Eventually, there's less and less we have to do to kickstart that promotion cycle. So it feels I always picture like a pinwheel in my mind. If you blow on it just a little bit, it kind of takes over on its own with momentum. So that's kind of the, the image that we have. That makes perfect sense. You're living the dream over there. It didn't take any hard work to get there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it only took four or five years. Yeah. <laughs> so when you talk about that email, is it a summary? So is this going out at the end of the week with a handful of summary links? Or is it the full post coming out immediately in email? Or how are you sending that out? Yeah, we've experimented with so many different ways. So at the moment, I believe it is a handwritten summary that goes out the day that the post is published. We've experimented with a weekly roundup of everything that's gone live on the blog over the past week. We've experimented with a very automated RSS email, just plug in your RSS mm-hmm. URL and MailChimp takes care of the rest. And we've experimented with kind of a curated newsletter that includes a link or two of ours along with others. And honestly, the open rates and click rates of all those are pretty equal across the board. We haven't seen like one clear winner. We're, we're doing the manual, write a quick recap, send it the day of. Uh, more just for kind of branding. We want to be personal and unique and timely and helpful and all these things. So it hasn't been metrics driven. It's been more brand driven for us. You pick the most time intensive method because there's no metric advantage. I understand. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a clear brand associated with it and it's... it's um, not due to a lack of hard work. So that stands out. Yeah. 
do things that don't scale. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so when you're talking about measurement, doing that, that two or three different check-in points, depending on how many days it's been since publication, what are the metrics for success when it comes to content? Yeah, so we've been able to build a, a benchmark for blog posts, and even that understanding has has shifted over time. So um, initially, it was let's look at the past maybe six months of content and see what is what are the averages for every new piece of content on day one, and day seven, and day twenty eight. And I believe uh, like day one was seventy five hundred visits. Day seven would be fifteen thousand. And then day 28 would be closer to 30,000. That was great. And, and those are kind of the, the metrics that drove us for a while. And then since then, we've updated it to say, kind of make that a rolling measurement. So given the last 25 posts that we published, what have been the averages there? And so we've we've moved that baseline up to be a bit more representative of what's happened recently. And then another element that we've re- very recently started to introduce is understand that there's different content types that perform differently. So we have basically two different types. You have the trending social media driven content, which spikes early and then tails off late. And there's not much of a long tail there. Then you have the SEO driven content, which may start off slow, but then gain momentum over time. And so measuring those, baselining those at the same rates didn't make as much sense. So we ended up kind of thinking of those in two different buckets. And so we'd have different baselines for each of those because they perform differently throughout the day one, seven and 28 check-ins. It's hard to understand like where to invest the most time on those, right? So how do you decide what um, portion of time is devoted to each one of those categories? Yeah, it, it has been hard. It's an interesting spot to be in because I think we're lucky that we can decide that. Mm-hmm. Like we, we can have two different content types. At the moment for us, the decision has been made easier because we already have most of the library content in place. And so if you think of the top 25 keywords by volume for social media, we've probably written a blog post for 24 of the 25 or maybe all, all 25 of them already. So okay. the, the conversation shifts there from like, what do we need to write to what do we need to update or maintain or keep fresh? Yeah. And that's that's a fortunate place to be in. Like if you're starting content, a content strategy from scratch, you'd have to actually write all 25 of those things, which would take time. So because of that, we've shift, we've made the decision to focus more on the, the non-evergreen content, what we call the publication content, the trending stories and news and case studies and strategies and tactics. And that's simply because it's what we haven't written about and what we're wanting to validate a bit more recently. So that's, that's why we were able to make that decision. But, you know, when I started, we couldn't have had, we couldn't have had both. We could have only had one and we chose the, the SEO evergreen one, which I think was the right call. Let's move into talking a little bit about team alignment. So I've been speaking to a lot of different marketers this season about a recurring theme that seems to keep coming up, the challenge of aligning content marketing and demand gen teams. So I'm curious, how is the marketing team at Buffer currently structured? Yeah, so there's 10 of us. I make 11. And we have five different areas. We have editorial, we have community, we have PR, we have product marketing, and we have conversion. And conversion is probably the closest we have to demand gen. And then editorial would be the, the proxy for, uh, for content marketing. And editorial is our biggest group. So that includes the two people we have working on our blog, our social media manager, part of our, I guess a lot of people overlap with editorial too. So our, our biz dev and partnerships person overlaps to a certain extent, PR and community overlap there. So we have a lot of resources there. We also have an engineer and a designer who help out across the board, but they often contribute to editorial as well. Do you get other folks in the company outside of the marketing team to 
do some writing? Or are you guys doing any prodding outside of your own internal team? Oh yeah, that's that's the dream is to like to have an army of writers that you can pull from. <laughs> so we we don't for the social blog. Um, at the moment, I'm running our open blog, which is our workplace culture and team mm-hmm. experiments blog. And I am fortunate that yes, people will write for that one. It's a lot of me noticing something cool that maybe our advocacy team is doing or our our people team is doing and saying that would make a cool blog post. Would you mind writing about it? So they've been very very good to me to to humor me with some of those requests. <laughs> How do you get people to write for that? I mean, so you're just, you're asking them and they're, they're doing the full outline and you're saying, Hey, I can help you out with this a little bit, or what's that process look like? It depends. I, I like to offer both ways to folks and let them choose. So it, it typically starts with me identifying what would be a good article and then reaching out to them and saying, is this something you'd be interested in writing? And if so, here is, here are the two options. You can write it yourself or I can get us started and you can jump in. Either way, I need it done by this date. And so usually like the deadline pressure is enough to have them say one one way or the other. If it's too too much pressure, they'll probably choose, you know, maybe I can start with it and they can finish it. But um, yeah, I like to leave it up to them just based on what their comfort level is with content. So when you're talking about that conversion team, working with the editorial team, how close is that relationship? Are those folks sitting side by side and setting their goals in tandem? Is it more reactive based on one side or the other? What does that process look like? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty reactive. If, if it were, if that were the spectrum, I think I'd say we're on the mm-hmm. reactive end. We have shared goals as a marketing team, um, but those goals can be a bit. I guess ownership of those goals can feel a bit separated out. So, for instance, in 2018, our goals were on awareness and signups. So we had a goal for 150 million people reached throughout the year and 1.5 million signups, and ideally, those two those two goals need to connect in some way, which is like editorials responsible for the reach number and the conversion teams responsible for the the user number. So ideally those connect. And what we ended up doing was placing some constraint metrics in between that overlap. So we said, yes, we want to reach a huge number of people, but we don't just want to reach anyone and everyone. We want to reach people who are going to become quality signups for us. And so of this reach number, what percentage of reach is coming to the buffer website? What percentage of people coming to the website, are bouncing versus staying. And then not only that, we could kind of track it all the way down through the funnel and say, okay, the blog sent this many people to our website and those people converted to paid plans at this rate. And so those are kind of like some, I guess, deeper like second level metrics that we looked at, some health indicators. But overall, it was the two big goals. And then ideally that aligned us toward kind of working on the same customer journey. Is there, is there any conflict that comes from the conversion team being more reactionary to editorial? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. The biggest risk that I've noticed is that there can be a lack of context to what each team is doing and what each team is working on, and they can end up potentially going in different directions and telling different stories. For instance, we have tried a lot of paid ads in the past that have not been effective for us. I believe one of the reasons for that has been that the stories that we're telling in the ads don't match the stories that folks are hearing and seeing when they come to the website itself. And that feels to me like a disconnect between an editorial team that is trying to get more, is trying to increase brand awareness for Buffer and a conversion team that's trying to optimize a website for a completely different audience mm-hmm. than an ads audience. So I think the kind of being in that in those silos can cause some problems with that. So what we've tried to do is simplify our process quite a bit. We don't run as many paid ads, or if we do, we run them much more top of funnel. We run them straight to blog posts and videos um, rather than running them to landing pages or the homepage. And we've kind of a, we've kind of 
been more clear about what this customer journey is. So we expect people to come to buffer.com through search. And a lot of it is branded keyword search. And so we'll, we'll rank for terms and we'll pay for, for terms there that are very branded brand focused. So what is buffer buffer app? Um, and then we also understand that people will come to buffer after knowing a bit about buffer from our blog. And so it's built this stronger narrative, which has allowed us to stay, I guess, a bit reactionary or separate in that regard. But I think as time goes on, those two areas will need to come closer and closer together and probably more of a Venn diagram than two distinct circles as it is today. So you're fully remote. How do you do that? How do you bring those two teams to sit side by side without sitting <laughs> side by side? <laughs> yeah, without literally doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think we've noticed it happen a bit more and more as we've expanded from this idea of content marketing to this idea of editorial. What that's done for us, at least, I think it's it's maybe more semantics than anything, but content marketing a lot of times can give people the perception of a blog and editorial can, what it's done for us is expanded that to include content in general, content in whatever form, whatever we're creating basically can fit under that editorial umbrella. So one of the ways that has helped is it has allowed editorial to think, okay, we want to rank for Facebook scheduling because it's a high traffic, high volume keyword. Does that keyword, does, does it make sense to rank for that keyword with a blog post or with a landing page on buffer.com? Just by the very nature of that being a question to ask, I think it has helped bring those teams together because the, the answer ended up being like, let's make it a, a page on buffer.com and you know, the Buffer website is owned by the conversion team. And so that has to be a conversation there. And the conversion team can think about effects that has on different funnels and add some advanced tracking there. And so it's just just by the nature of that perception changing to be, you know, what is content overall? I think that has helped us think about that more as one, one bigger problem or journey to solve for. And practically speaking, like there's tools and things that help us feel like we're sitting a bit closer together. But I think it it ultimately is more about those bigger where are we going? What is our strategy? Bigger, bigger questions that are going to bring us closer together and not necessarily what we're working in or how, how aligned we are on tools or processes or things. I remember reading a lot about the, the buyback from venture capital. I'm curious, did that affect the way that you're able to set or think about or execute on strategy for the marketing side? It did not. No major change. Um, nothing changed. No. <laughs> Um, did you read our marketing budget blog post? Yeah, I did. I, I like that carbon ads mentioned in there. I wish it was a link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I can change that for you. <laughs> Very easy. That would be, You're talking to the right person. That would be amazing. <laughs> but to, to answer your question, um, like we, we don't have a very big marketing budget as mm-hmm. it is. And so buying out investors, yes, it took a lot of our cash flow, um, but it didn't force us to cut into our future marketing spend in any way. And that was probably probably something that other companies might experience a bit more mm-hmm. so. So it, it hasn't hampered us for 2019 at all with our planning or strategy. If anything, it gave us yeah some more flexibility and freedom to experiment with new things that we might be actually spending more on marketing than we have in the past. Where do you think content marketing is heading in 2019 and beyond? I've been giving that some thought recently. Um, one of the things that we're looking at is more on the end of experiential content and interactive content and what that means for what that looks like for us. So the trends we're noticing is how popular something like, like Instagram stories have been where you're able to thumb through and, and swipe to kind of consume content on your own pace mm-hmm. and style. We've thought about blog posts, like what is code from business week a while back and types forms, conversational one. 
we just feel like in order to stand out for content in 2019 and beyond, it's going to need to take more than, you know, a, a skyscraper type content of 3,500 or 4,000 words. It's going to need to take something pretty special to really capture that attention in a, at scale in a viral way. I think we're, we're betting on experiential and interactive content being one of those ways. I think the flip side of that is, um, Another trend that we're noticing is this movement toward what we're calling micro content or recap mm-hmm. content. If you look at some of these, like a website that I followed for a long time has been Pro Football Weekly, which just goes out and finds football stories and writes 100, 200 words on their blog about those stories. If you look at a blog like the Reforge Brief, they go out and source all these other great blog posts and give them short recaps and link back to them. But, you know, what they're giving their audiences these short nuggets of information that make it much easier to consume content. And so if there's a return to micro content or micro blogging in some way, I think there's been some signs that that is a more palatable way that people can consume content and maybe build a longer lasting audience if you're able to deliver that type of content consistently. What advice do you have for marketers looking to grow in their career? I'd say if you're looking to grow in your career, always stay curious and follow that curiosity wherever it may lead. I've often thought about, should I be designing my career? Should I know exactly where I'm going next? And I think there's lots of value to doing that. I think I've been lucky to get where I am today, not having planned or designed anything. And so I think it's been like purely a a curiosity thing for me where something interests me and I'll follow that to a certain end. There can be a lot of value for marketers in their careers if, if you can diversify yourself. And I think, yes, having a specialty is great, but almost having like two specialties or having, you know, many different skills that that you can bring to the table, kind of a T-shaped marketer is what we call it a buffer. I think that's going to be the most valuable way to grow in your marketing career. Where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kevin Lee and on my website where I write frequently at kevinlee.com. Thanks for listening to Regrowth, the podcast for B2B marketers looking to grow in their careers. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Buy Sell Ads and be sure to check out our website for more information on each season and episode.